but every so often our apologies on that. Uh, we're still working through technical glitches there, but uh, it does help you focus on the words that, oh, it might not be there in the next second, so I better remember what it is. Our message today, gone to pot. No, not that kind of pot. Gone to pot, like the potter in the wheel pot. God's mercy in warning and our resistance. First section, change your mind. It can be easy or hard to change our mind depending whether or not we want to. A young second lieutenant at an army base discovered that he had no change when he was about to buy a soft drink from a vending machine. He stopped a passing private and asked him, Do you have change for a dollar? The private said cheerfully, I think so, let me check. The lieutenant drew himself up stiffly and said, Soldier, that's no way to address an officer. We'll start all over again. Do you have change for a dollar? The private came to attention, saluted smartly, and said, Sir, no, sir! What exactly was it that went on there? A little bit of pressure, a little coercion can go a long way, but not always in the desired direction. Our pride gets in the way. We can get our back up and become resistant when someone seems to be trying to get us to do something we don't like. Our stubbornness kicks in. In today's reading from Jeremiah, the Lord, through the prophet, tried to show the people they had a real choice. They could change their mind, change their ways, and avoid disaster. He was offering them a real opportunity to spare themselves much grief and get back on track. But their stubbornness kicked in, and they persisted in going their own way, worshiping idols and perverting justice. They preferred their own brackish pools instead of the Lord, who was offering them a spring of living water. Our big idea for today, it's a question, a mystery. Why do hard hearts resist a good God despite winsome warning? Next section, a hard heart's harvest. It's been wonderful these past weeks seeing the season's harvest starting to make its way off the farm fields. Hay, wheat, straw. Roadside stands have begun to offer fresh sweet corn for sale. Especially encouraging to hear that a ship of Ukrainian wheat was finally able to leave that nation's port on its way to markets to feed the world's hungry. But there are non-agricultural harvests too. We talked last week about a person reaping what they sow. As Paul pointed out in Galatians 6.8, the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. The problem is, it doesn't come naturally to do good. What tends to come naturally, what pleases our flesh, is to do good to ourselves, to be selfish, to foster our own comfort and feed our appetites. See the way the Lord describes the hearts of the people of Judah in Jeremiah 18.12. But they will reply, it's no use. 
We will continue with our own plans. Each of us will follow the stubbornness of his evil heart. That's a bit of a stock phrase with Jeremiah, the stubbornness of the evil heart. Back in chapter 13, the Lord had the prophet conduct an object lesson. He bought a new linen belt and wore it for a while so others saw it. Later, God told him to pack in a crevice in the rocks, and so he did. Many days later, God sent him back to retrieve the belt, but the fresh linen belt had been ruined by being sunk in the ground. It was completely useless, 13.8. What was the moral of the enacted parable? God was about to ruin the pride of Judah and Jerusalem, 13.10. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, there it is again, and go after other gods to serve and worship them will be like this belt, completely useless. Pride and selfishness are ruinous, wasting. Back to chapter 18. This phrase, each of us will follow the stubbornness of his evil heart. We see various harvests from these stubborn evil hearts in this passage. The first harvest is plans, 1812. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. Because they've turned away from God, where did those plans have them turning to? Towards other gods. Verse 15, yet my people have forgotten me. They they burn incense to worthless idols, which made them stumble in their ways and in the ancient paths. They made them walk in bypaths and on roads not built up. Worthless idols led them to stumble. They, They left the right path and took moral shortcuts, detours, using false weights in their trading, cheating the poor, becoming skilled in lying and deception. More consequences would be harvested from their immoral actions and worship of false gods. Verse 16, their land will be laid waste, an object of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. The land would be devastated and pillaged by invading armies and raiders. Passers-by would scoff and hold God's people in contempt for what had happened. Another harvest they would reap would be exile. Verse 17. Like a wind from the east, I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their disaster. Not only would God scatter them to other lands and send them away as prisoners to Babylon, he would refuse to answer them when they cried out on the day of destruction. They had turned their back on God. So he would turn his back on them. Compare what the people had done in Jeremiah 2.27. They say to wood, you are my father, and to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they're in trouble, they say, come and save us. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. So a habit and you reap a character. So a character and you reap a destiny. What are you sowing and reaping? What's your behavioral harvest? 
read through the news headlines and you'll probably agree the hardness and evil of the human heart can be astounding. Malcolm Muggridge was a journalist and author who witnessed many notable events in his lifetime. Muggridge observed, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. In the previous chapter, Jeremiah summed up succinctly the lowest common denominator for humans. 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It's both a sage observation and an implicit plea for deliverance. Who can rescue us from the harvest our evil, hard hearts sow? A lady named Jewel Shooping, now around 37 years old from North Carolina, reportedly has body integrity identity disorder. It's a psychological condition where healthy people believe they are meant to be disabled. Ms. Shooping fantasized since she was young about being blind. Now, I worked with blind people for two years in Congo with Christian Blind Mission International. We taught them farming and handicrafts and other skills so they could earn a livelihood. It was very admirable what some of these blind people could do. One fellow used a form to make concrete blocks. But wanting to be blind when you have the ability to see would be hard for me to fathom. Sight is such a wonderful gift from God. Nevertheless, Ms. Shooping persisted in her fantasizing. As a teen, she started to wear thick black sunglasses. She got her first white cane at 18 and was fully fluent in Braille by 20. Then in 2006, she found a psychologist willing to pour drain cleaner in her eyes to help her fulfill her wish to become blind. How awful. How sick. I don't know which is more twisted, wanting to be blind and going through with it, or being a medical professional actually willing to provide that service. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We will continue to live as we want to, stubbornly following our own evil desires. New Living Translation. Next section, the positive, persistent potter. The visuals prophets use can be quite arresting. God told Jeremiah to go down to a certain potter's house where God would give Jeremiah's message. Let's read what happened in verses 2b to 4. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. It's a very simple yet profound analogy, pointing to both divine sovereignty and creaturely responsibility. On the one hand, God's sovereignty. As an earlier prophet, Jeremiah's predecessor Isaiah wrote, Isaiah 64, 8, Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. God begins to interpret the parable of the potter to the prophet. Jeremiah 18.5 Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? 
Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So far, simple enough. The analogy seems straightforward. God as creator has the right to do as he pleases with what he has made. This is the emphasis the Apostle Paul parks on in Romans 9. There, Paul is wrestling with the puzzle of why Jewish people are not being very receptive to the good news about Jesus, while the church is growing amongst the Gentiles, non-Jews. Paul is adamant God can have mercy or harden whomever he wants to. Romans 9, 20-24. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Yes, God as potter absolutely has the right to fashion objects as he chooses, whether for wrath or to receive mercy. God does not owe it to anybody to make sure they get into heaven. He is absolutely just in condemning sinners to hell. Otherwise, heaven and his presence would be tainted. Knowing that should heighten our appreciation as believers for his mercy and grace to us. Yet there's another layer to Jeremiah's object lesson. That particular lump of clay seems somehow uncooperative. There's something about it that resists being made into the original design the potter had in mind. The text says the clay was marred in his hands. It's the same word in Hebrew as the ruined linen belt back in chapter 13. Spoiled, wrecked. The clay is giving the potter pushback. That doesn't phase the potter. He just goes on to make something different out of that uncooperative lump. He formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. It seems like there's another element at play here besides simply God's sovereignty, the Lord's right to do as he pleases with what he's made. Recall our big idea for today. Why do hard hearts resist a good God despite winsome warning? Next section, wet paint. God's warnings as caring. Recently, I was repainting some Muskoka chairs we'd had repaired. Unfortunately, I also succeeded in painting a fair amount of my coveralls while doing it. Have you seen those signs that say, wet paint? They are not invitations to have you leave your fingerprints on the freshly painted wall. The sign is a warning placed there with a benevolent purpose, namely to spare you the grief of accidentally getting paint on your hand, your body, or your clothing, and consequently on whatever else you touch. 
Jeremiah was continually showing people wet paint signs, as it were, not to make them feel startled or bad, but to spare them grief. God's purpose in warning us about evil is benevolent. He's warning us because he cares about us and wants to spare us the grief that comes as a result of transgressing his ways. Is designed for loving human relationships and community and is designed for meaningful divine human fellowship. Look closely at the if-then pairings in verses 7 to 10. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended for it, intended to do for it. God is sovereign, but that doesn't mean he's dealing with merely passive agents. We're not robots. The clay can be uncooperative. It plays an active role interacting with the potter. The clay, this clay, has a mind of its own. Here we get into the mystery of the interplay of divine sovereignty and human response. If he announces a nation will be built up, but it does evil and is disobedient, he will reconsider the good he had intended for it. Is God being fickle or wishy-washy? Does he change his mind on a whim? Is he arbitrary and temperamental like the gods of the Greek pantheon? You want to catch him on a good day, as it were? No. God is faithful, trustworthy, true. He can be counted on. He keeps his word. Numbers 23:19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Yet, God is making the point that he is responsive to human willingness. Our choices are not predetermined or robotic. They are real choices. Love is not coerced, but a free response of the creature to the creator. Mind you, human fallenness and original sin get in the way of mortals even wanting a relationship with God. We need his spirit to regenerate us, to awaken us and give us that capacity. We were dead in our trespasses and sins before the gospel came along. God is a communicating God. The prophets and apostles and Jesus in his teaching ministry were all vehicles of God's revealing himself, making his ways known so we could have our sins identified and forgiven and come into a relationship with him. His warnings through the prophets are wet paint signs to help us for our benefit, to spare us the grief sin would trap us in by its consequences. Jeremiah's words to his countrymen reveal the fairness and mercy of a just, holy, revelatory God who genuinely cares about them and wants what's best for them, rather than just letting them stumble blindly on their way. Here, verse 11. Now therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look, I'm preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So, Turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. 
The goal is not perdition, but salvation, not condemnation and death, but repentance and life. Turn from your evil ways. Reform your actions. It's a stern warning, yes, but underneath is a loving desire for people to come to their maker and be healed. Along the lines of Ezekiel 33.11, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? God gets no jollies out of consigning anyone to hell. There's no pleasure for him in that at all. A pernicious puzzle. Now, let's say you know some idiot or prankster is going to come along and sit in those bright yellow Muskoka chairs you just painted. Even if you put up those large wet paint signs, would you be pleased? What might your attitude be towards individuals that would do that? And do you even bother putting up the wet paint signs if that's how they're going to behave? Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, humans have a degree of free will and are responsible for their actions, as Judas was still responsible for betraying Jesus. But God still has foreknowledge of events. All time is but a fishbowl from God's perspective. He can see the beginning and the end. He can look at it from any angle he pleases. Space-time is his construct. He knows those mischief-makers are going to come along and sit in the chair, wreck the paint job. Does he still put up the wet paint sign? That's exactly why he's commissioned Jeremiah to be his spokesman to a rebellious people. He's still going to warn them regardless, even though he knows they won't heed his words. Verses 12 to 15. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. Each of us will follow the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Inquire among the nations. Who has ever heard anything like this? A most horrible thing has been done by a virgin Israel. Does the snow of Lebanon ever vanish from its rocky slopes? Do its cool waters from distant sources ever cease to flow? Yet, my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols. It's a pernicious puzzle. It seems like God just can't understand it. Why would they resist his invitation? Why don't they heed his warning? It's like you could ask some rhetorical question, something painfully obvious. Does water flow uphill? Can pigs fly? Of course not, is the expected answer. Yet, why have God's special people forgotten him and turned to worship of false gods instead? Some of the mountains in the Lebanon range towered over 10,000 feet above sea level. Their snow-capped peaks provided welcome fresh water even in the heat of a Mediterranean summer. You could count on it, like icebergs drifting past the coast of Newfoundland, having broken off from faraway Arctic sources, principally western Greenland. It would be super strange if that didn't happen. Again, our big idea today. Why do hard hearts resist a good God despite winsome warning? 
So focus not on the warning, but see beneath it to the yearning of the Lord for his people to take heed and come back to him, to destroy their idols, to start loving their neighbor as he'd instructed them, to care for others the way he cared for them and wanted to spare them catastrophe. There are parallels in the New Testament. Jesus explaining to Nicodemus both how God so loved the world, and that verse we all love, John 3.16, but also warning two verses later, John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See Jesus' tears as he weeps over the city of Jerusalem that's rejecting him. Luke 19.41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Hear Jesus' invitation in Revelation 3.20, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. Jeremiah knew the Lord is the spring of living water, 1713. Why do we persist in rejecting him and hewing our own broken cisterns that can hold no water, 213? I close with a response one of our congregation wrote on their membership application in response to the question, how did your life change after you received Christ? This person recalls, I remember feeling immediately lighter and an intense sense of joy. Even though I was very young at the time, I can still remember the place, the weather that day, and how I felt after. My life changed more dramatically in my 20s as I sought to follow Christ as my Lord and not just my Savior. I see his hand at work in my life daily as he demonstrates both his attentiveness to the smallest details and his capacity to sustain me through intensely hard times as well. Let's pray. Lord, it is so true. You are the potter. We are the clay. Our lives are in your hands. Forgive us for the times we resist your touch, your nudges we kick against the goads. Show us the idols we have yet to let go of. Thank you for your great mercy and patience and your grace in fashioning something beautiful for your glory.